Well, do take your Bibles and let's turn to Romans chapter 8 together. That's page 944. We'd love for you to follow along, even if you don't have a Bible. We're going to read the chapter in its entirety this week to set the stage for um, this new series that we're embarking on through the 8th chapter of the Epistle of Romans. Uh, That this will take us, uh, the Lord willing, uh, through the end of the summer. So I'm envisioning something like 15 to 20 sermons um, in this chapter. That might sound like a lot to you for a single chapter. And to be honest, it sounds like a lot to me. If we were just preaching through the book of Romans, I probably would take chapter 8 in its main headings of uh, four or five sermons. That would be my normal course of preaching. So... 15 or 17 or 20, that will slow us down, that will stretch us, that will be a challenge for us. And if at any point you get frustrated, I'll remind you now that Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 77 sermons on the 8th chapter of Romans. And aren't you glad, at least on this one occasion, that Martin Lloyd-Jones is not your pastor? (laughs) So I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then Perry's going to come up and preach the sermon. That's also impromptu, he didn't know that until right now. No, we do trust that God will bless the preaching, reading and the preaching of his word and give the strength needed. Chapter 8. Let's hear God's word to us as we find it in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, But according to the Spirit, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit 
of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else 
in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. As far as the reading of God's word, may he write his eternal truth upon all our hearts. I hope it's evident just in hearing it read, reading along with it, that Romans 8 is worthy of a special consideration all on its own, by itself. Christians have innately been drawn to the contents of this chapter, recognizing that there's something special about Romans 8. James Boyce called it the greatest chapter in the Bible, and he was not alone. Octavius Winslow a 19th century British pastor in the Baptist tradition, a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, wrote this. It would perhaps be impossible to select from the Bible a single chapter in which were crowded so much sublime, evangelical, and sanctifying truth as this eighth chapter of Romans. 17th century Lutheran theologian Philip Spainer said that this chapter is the cathedral of the Christian faith, and it is the highest peak in the mountain range of Scripture. Now, Lloyd-Jones, who I mentioned earlier, he believed Romans 5 was the greatest chapter in the Bible, but even he had to concede that Romans 8 was the most moving. And he recounts that one minister describes Romans as the brightest and most a illustrious collection of gems in all of Scripture, but in that collection of bright gems, none shows more brightly than the eighth chapter of Romans. So, what is it exactly that makes this chapter so great and worthy of our study? Well, the obvious answer is the subject matter that is taken up and expounded for us, but we would be irresponsible students of the Bible if we just want to pick up the variety of themes in Romans 8 without considering their greater context. So, even if we are, this summer, going to take a look at Romans 8, we need to start with a bigger picture view. Otherwise, our study won't be as rich or rewarding. We are parachuting into the middle of this letter, and now that we've landed, the first thing we need, need to do is, is survey uh, the surroundings, get a lay of the land. And so, two things this morning. The first is this chapter's context, and then we'll do a brief overview of the chapter's content. But first, the context. And so, everybody needs to have your Bible open. I don't rarely say that, but today you do. I want everybody's eyes not up here, but down in your laps where your Bibles are, because we are going to do some in-depth study of Romans, uh, well, as in-depth as we can do in about 15 minutes. Romans 8, you'll see, begins with this great word, therefore, and one of the uh, unbreakable uh, fundamental rules of biblical exegesis is that when you come across a therefore, you need to ask, what's the therefore? Therefore. We preachers are so funny, the things we come up with. Well, in doing that, we're actually setting us up to answer what the entire chapter of Romans 8 is therefore. That's our goal today. And the first inclination, and it's a good one, is to connect the therefore with what immediately precedes it. Well, what does the end of chapter 7 say? So then, verse 25, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Therefore, there's no condemnation. 
Well, that doesn't make any sense. The end of chapter 7 kind of tells us why there should be condemnation, doesn't it? Because we serve in our bodies the law of sin. Some say we should just take the first half of that last sentence. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. Therefore, now there is no condemnation. But you see what that does? That would say that the reason we are forgiven, the reason we are pardoned, is because we've done something. We serve the law of God with our minds, which flies in the face of everything that Paul establishes in Romans, which is that we are justified not by works, but by faith alone. So we seem to be stumped here for a moment, because that therefore cannot tie back to the end of chapter 7. But this helps us, actually. It doesn't stump us. It shows us, actually, that to understand what the therefore is therefore, we need to take into account everything that Paul has said before. The entire thrust of his epistle in Romans 1 through 7. Back when I was a junior in college, I went to a conference entitled Romans in 24 Hours. Because that's what all the cool kids in college were doing. So we all, okay, just me by myself, went to this conference where Sinclair Ferguson, no less, expounded the entire book in 24 hours. So we're going to see what we can do in 15 minutes here of expounding, not the whole book, but just the first few chapters. So go back to chapter 1. In verse 16, Paul gives us a very clear thesis statement in the book of Romans. Verse 16 and 17, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so, With this thesis statement, we can understand that this epistle is all about the righteousness of God. And Paul's going to begin by showing us how badly we need it, how wonderful God is in giving it to us, and then what it looks like to live um, a life uh, before this justifying God. So the first main section after that thesis picks up in verse 18 and goes through chapter 3 and verse 20. We could call this first section, humanity's great problem. Humanity's great problem. Because what Paul shows us is that nobody is exempt from the need to stand righteous before God. The pagan and immoral Gentile needs that. That's what Paul takes up at the end of chapter 1. He talks about the wrath of God being revealed against the ungodliness of men. In chapter 2, though, he addresses people who have an outward morality. Verse 3, do you suppose a man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you're going to escape the judgment of God? He addresses people who have an outward morality but secretly practice the same sorts of sins. How about verse 23 of chapter 2? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Indeed, even religious Jews are not exempt from the need to be perfect before God. Without this righteousness, they too will be condemned. 
And this culminates in chapter 3, verse 10, with this indictment against all humanity. None is righteous. No, not one. Not Not a single one. None is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So, the theological conclusion that Paul draws at the end of this section is pretty grim. He's established that everybody needs to be made righteous because they are not inherently. Everybody needs to be justified. And yet the answer to that great need cannot come from the very thing that everybody thinks will answer the need. Namely, doing good works. Look at verse 20. This is how he rounds out that section. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Boys and girls, if you were at um, Lake Michigan, maybe you wanted to go there yesterday when it felt like a summer day. Uh, picture yourself there and you're, you're building a sandcastle. And, and of course, every sandcastle needs a moat around it. And, and so what do we do when we're at the beach, right? We take our, our little sandcastle bucket and we run into the water and we fill it up with water. And then we run back and we empty the moat and or fill, empty it into the moat, and we go back, and by the time you get back to the moat, all the water's, what, evaporated, sunk into the sand, it's gone. And you could do that for hours and hours, and you would never be able to fill up that moat. Well, what if I said you have to go, and not only do you need to fill up the moat, but you actually have to empty Lake Michigan, and all you have is this little bucket. Do you think you could do it? I saw somebody nod their head. I'm going to talk with you after the service. Because you're an adult. (laughs) No, of course not. It's impossible. It's impossible, right? Because the work we're doing is incomparably insufficient to the task that we've been given, right? The work of filling up buckets of water is incomparably incomparably insufficient to the task of emptying out Lake Michigan. Every time you go back, you'll see the water isn't any more shallow than from your last trip. And that's what it's like to try to please God with the works of the law. By doing good works, you'll find out that you can never do enough. You could, you could try everything that you have within you, returning again and again to what the law says, oh, if I'm just a little better this time, if I just try a little harder this time, if I just do a little more and a little more and a little more, well, you can never please God by doing good works, just like you can never empty out Lake Michigan with a little bucket. That's what Paul says. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. So what is Paul telling us? And you need to hear this. Good works don't work. Good works don't work, not ultimately. That's humanity's great problem, you and me included. Well, thank God the letter doesn't end there. Instead, Paul begins the next section, starting in chapter 321, and it spans to the end of chapter 5, and we could call this section God's gracious solution to humanity's great problem. Paul's established the universal need for righteousness, how we can't get it. But then in verse 21, 
Listen to these amazing words. Read them with me there. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is an amazing thing that Paul is saying. Uh, Lloyd-Jones says that, that declaration, but now those two words are the greatest words in the entire Bible. And he says this is the hinge of Paul's argument. Here's where everything changes because we've had this this problem. Now God gives the solution, and it's one that we never could have come up with on our own. Have you ever had a um, I've been doing it all wrong kind of moment? Have you ever had one of those where somebody steps in and, and shows you that something you've been doing your whole life, you've actually been been doing wrong maybe they offer a life hack and you're just like what have i been thinking i didn't realize that spouses are good at giving you those um you've been doing it all wrong kind of feelings sometimes uh having a new baby also gives those to you right or i'm there with caleb and he's fussing and crying and i'm trying everything and then carrie says give them to me and immediately right he's out i've been doing it all wrong this is paul's you've been doing it all wrong announcement to humanity You thought you could be made right with God by works of the law. You've been doing it all wrong. No, no, it's actually not anything you do because God, what does it say? God in his righteousness has been manifested apart from the law. It's not the law. It's something else entirely. What is it? Faith in Jesus Christ. So here's where everything changes. The despair of living an unrighteous life before a holy God, gives way to the freeing hope that we can be justified. And it's by faith. It's not by anything that we have to do. God does it for us. Paul continues that in chapter 4. He uses Abraham and David as examples of people who have been justified by faith. Verses um, 3 and 6. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 6. David also speaks of the blessing. What blessing? The blessing of the one who God counts righteous apart from works. In other words, Paul's saying, uh, you've been doing it all wrong, but it's, I'm not offering you anything new. This is the way God's been working all along. This is how God has always saved people, by grace, through faith. It's all grace. Chapter 5, Paul continues to detail this amazing gift of righteousness We see here, if you just look through, skim through chapter 5 with me, verse 1, it gives us the thing that we need more than anything else, peace with God. Verse 2, access to God. Verse 8, it comes when we least deserve it, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Five different times in this chapter, Paul will emphasize that the gift is free. He calls it the free gift, the free gift, the free gift, the free gift. The free gift of righteousness. And so, taken all together, Paul gives this declaration. Look with me at the final two verses of chapter 5. Now, the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That phrase is so important. And so is the next. So that... As sin reigned in death, grace, that abounding grace, also might reign through the righteousness, through righteousness leading to eternal life 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, you need to hear what Paul is saying. He is saying that grace is better at producing good in your hearts than sin is at producing evil. Did you hear that? Are you going to make me repeat it, really, guys? Grace is better at producing good in your hearts than sin is at producing evil. All of the unrighteousness that Adam brought into the world is met and matched, but then exceeded by the righteousness that Christ brings to all who believe in him. That's what it means when he says grace abounds all the more. It's not as though uh, Christ comes in as um, a worthy opponent to what sin has done, what what Adam has brought in, and, and we don't know who will win out. No, Christ comes in and he more than conquers, and we become more than conquerors in him as well. Paul is announcing here at the end of chapter 5 that grace wins. Grace reigns. Grace conquers. And that sounds pretty remarkable, and indeed it is. So then we come to chapter 6 and 7, and we see that Paul dials things back just slightly by offering two important qualifications. So we had humanity's great problem, then God's gracious solution to humanity's great problem. Now Paul's important qualifications to God's gracious solution to humanity's great problem. What are the two qualifications? Well, chapter 6, he asserts that just because we live by grace does not mean that we have a license to sin. That's the great overall theme of chapter 6. We do not sin that grace may abound. Chapter 7, Paul addresses the false notion that just because we live by grace does not mean that we have no need for God's law. Actually, verses 12 and 13 there, he says that God's law is good. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So, chapter 6 and 7 are something of an aside, something of a parenthetical in Paul's greater argument about God's great solution to humanity's great problem. That doesn't mean they're unimportant chapters. Far from it. Hardly. I mean, the minute we think that since we're justified by grace, we can live however we want, we can sin as much as we want, then we've missed out entirely on what it means to be a Christian. If you think that being a Christian means you can sin all you want, what makes you any different than an unbeliever? We are different from unbelievers not only in our destiny, that is that Christians go to heaven, unbelievers go to hell. We are different also in our desires. Not just our destiny, but our desires in the right here and right now. Spurgeon says this, a truly converted man hates sin with all his heart. And even if he could sin without suffering for it, it would be misery enough to him to sin at all. Even if he could get away with it. The thought, the thought of abusing God's grace would be misery. So be very cautious of cozying up to people who say they're Christians, but seemingly have no interest in growing in godliness, and be even more cautious if you are one of those people. So, having handled those two qualifications, Paul returns to God's gracious solution to humanity's great problem in chapter 8. There we are. We're back to our text. So really, he's returning to where he left off at the end of chapter 5. 
where he made that triumphant declaration that grace reigns in the life of the Christian. And he says, therefore. So now that we have the context, we can approach the content finally this morning. We could say that chapter 8 is Paul rhapsodizing on the Christian's glorious benefits received from God's gracious solution to humanity's great problem. Chapter 8 is all about the glorious benefits of being a Christian. The benefits mentioned in Romans 8 include, but are not limited to, justification, sanctification, adoption, perseverance, glorification. And in the weeks to come, Lord willing, we will dive deeply into each one of those. In the words of one Bible teacher, this wonderful chapter sets forth every tense of the Christian life, past, present, future. How our sins have been dealt with at the cross, how we have sanctifying power to fight sin in the here and now, and how we will be glorified in the life to come. So what Paul is uh, giving us in this chapter is an exhilarating view of the Christian life, how it works, how it's to be lived, how it's to be viewed. That's what Romans 8 is there for. That's why we have it. So that you and I could view the Christian life with all the warmth and wonder possible. To see it for all its glorious and gracious benefits. As I mentioned, in the next months we'll dive deeply into those. But for today, let me close by drawing your attention just to two overarching points that Paul makes about the Christian life in Romans 8, and then we'll be done. So two overarching benefits about the Christian life. First, Paul wants us to see that the Christian life is spiritual. And if you're writing down notes, make sure you put that with a capital S, because what I mean by that is that the Christian life is lived by the Holy Spirit. Maybe you noticed when we read it earlier, but the Holy Spirit shows up a lot in Romans 8. He is mentioned by name 20 times in this chapter, more than anywhere else in the book of Romans. And look with me at at this chapter. You see that he does it all. Verse 2, the Spirit of God is the one who's released us from the dungeon cell of sin, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. We have a new lifestyle because, according to verse 4, we, we live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 9, the Spirit is the proof that we belong to God. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Verse 11, the Spirit is the one who's brought us from death to life. It is by the Spirit's power, and only the Spirit's power, that we are able to say no to sin because verse 14 tells us, 13 tells us that it is by the spirit that we can put to death the deeds of the body. The Holy Spirit in verses 14 and 15 assures us that we're children of God, that we've been adopted. Verse 26, the spirit is the one through whom we are able to pray. If you don't have a spirit of God, you can't pray to God. So what's the point? What's, what's the significance? Why is the Holy Spirit mentioned so many times? Well, here it is. Here's the point. 
If you are trying to live the Christian life in your own power, if you're trying to live the Christian life in your own strength, by sheer force of will, by, by grit, you are doing it all wrong. You're doing it all wrong. You are actually ignoring the divine power that God has placed at your disposal to help you through life. So what does reliance on the Spirit look like? It looks like a life of prayer. A life bathed in the Word of God. We pray and we read God's Word because we know that we need wisdom from above. We can't make decisions on our own. Uh, We can't get through life on our own, navigating on our own. No, we need God's help, and God's provided that help by the Spirit. So we pray. So we read God's Word. It also looks like a life involved intimately with God's people, the church. Because God often works the Spirit, or God uses His Spirit to um, influence the words and the actions of others to our benefit. Right? The Spirit regularly uses others to comfort us and to correct us. So, that means if you do not pray, if you're not reading your Bible, if you don't live life in the church, with the church, you're trying to live the Christian life apart from God's Spirit and in your own strength, and you will fail. But maybe I could put it more positively for you, dear Christian. As you struggle day in and day out with sin, with lust that you cannot conquer, with anger that you can't seem to get rid of, with the pride that creeps up in nearly every conversation you have, with envy that you feel every time you get on social media, with the gossip that you engage in every time you get together with your friends, as you struggle day in and day out with sin and you feel like giving up, let Romans 8 remind you, let Romans 8 remind you that God never calls us to holiness without giving us a helper. God never calls us to holiness without giving us the helper. Remember, that's what Jesus calls the Spirit. I will send to you a helper. We don't do it on our own. And that's gospel. Romans 8 is gospel. It's all gospel. Even when it talks about sanctification, that's gospel. Because, and you need to hear me on this, the gospel is not just Jesus died for my sins. The gospel is Jesus died for my sins so that now I can die to my sins. I have power that I did not have before. And as you struggle with sin, you're going to want to cling to that good news. The Christian life is spiritual. And because it's governed by the Holy Spirit, there's a second and final thing Paul emphasizes throughout the whole chapter. It's spiritual, and therefore it is secure. It's secure. That's the, really the main point of this chapter. Charles Hodge wrote that the salvation of those who have renounced the law and accepted the gracious offer of the gospel is shown to be absolutely certain. And this whole chapter is a series of arguments most beautifully arranged in support of this one point, the Christian security. That's the, that's the main idea. And you can see that it's the main idea if you look at the first verse and if you look at the last verse. What's the first verse say? There is no condemnation. What does the last verse say? There is no separation. 
There's no separation. And we think, well, how could this possibly be? There is enough sin in me for me to be condemned to hell a million times over. How could God say there's no condemnation? And there are enough forces out in the world, let alone my own heart, that would drag me away from the presence of God the moment they had the chance. How could it be that there's no separation? Well, Paul tells us, because in both times, he says it's all about Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then he says, and there's nothing able to separate us, what? From the love of God in Christ Jesus. When you're found in Christ, when you're wrapped up in Christ, when God looks at you and he actually sees him, well, then, of course, there's nothing to condemn. And, of course, there's no reason to ever be parted. Christ is his perfectly pleasing son. Christ has done it all and done it all perfectly. And so everything we need for the assurance of our salvation and the consolation of our souls is found in these two irrevocable declarations of the gospel found in Romans 8. In Christ, there is nothing that would cause God to send us away. And in Christ, there is nothing that could ever take us away. In Christ, there's no reason for God to ever send us away. And in Christ, there's nothing that can take us away. We're with God. And God is for us to the end. And so then the question is, are you in Christ? Are you a Christian? Do you want a life of security, a life that's not filled with the anxiety of trying to do something or anything or, or, or just a little more to get into God's good graces? Do you want a life that's lived, a life that's marked by God's love for you? Do you want to know that your whole life is governed by a father's good plan who works everything for your good and that when you die, you will meet with your maker who is for you and not against you, who will not condemn you, but who will welcome you into his presence? If you want that, then you need to be in Christ. What a wonderful thing it is to be a Christian. Amen? Romans 8 reminds us why. That's what it's there for. Romans 8 teaches us that God is for us, and when we believe that God is for us, we can start to live for him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by your spirit you would bless the preached word, and that your Holy Spirit that we have discussed a little bit this morning would come to be the after-preacher, to remind us of what we have learned, and to lead us in the life everlasting. Amen.